I'm going to preface our, our sermon today with um, giving, showing you a video. We got the honor and privilege of going to the Passion Conference in Atlanta um, this, this last January. And in doing so, we got to join with 60,000 college students. We got to bring some of our young adult college students to Atlanta to participate in this. And some of us old folks got to be involved with it. And it was a great time. There were 60,000 people spread out across three arenas in Atlanta to worship the name of Jesus. And one of the sessions, I was introduced to a pastor as well as the other 60,000. Uh, we were introduced to a pastor by the name of Levi Lusco. Um, Levi is a pastor in Montana, and I got to remember the name of his church. Um, if you know anything about Montana, it's not an evangelical uh, bastion, okay? Um, it is it's definitely not. But he has started a church there called Fresh Life Church. And they moved from Southern California out there, and God has blessed this church exponentially. And several thousands attend this church, which is no small feat in a state the size of Montana. And on December the 20th of 2012, his household was hit with a tragedy of unspeakable proportions. On that December 20th, as they prepared for Christmas holidays, his daughter, Linya, who they, they called her, her nickname was Linya Lion Lusco, had an awful asthma attack. And um, I would like to show you a video of his testimony about that. Paramedics come in, they hook her up for, to a defibrillator, and I'm just asking them, is her heart beating? Is her heart beating? And I could just see in their faces, um, they, they said, no, it's not right now. And I'm like, why isn't that machine shocking her? And they said it can't shock her unless it finds a shockable rhythm. And long story short, we end up um, through the snow. I help carry the stretcher into the ambulance, and we load off for the hospital, same hospital she was born in. And uh, when we get there, in, in panic moments in the emergency room, my wife and I are praying. Uh, the surgeon comes out, and he says, um, I'm so sorry. There's nothing more we can do. Would you like to come into the room and, and be there when we turn the machines off? And I, we just push past him. We run in there, and we, uh, we say, um, Jesus, you made, you made um, Linya, and you died on the cross. You rose from the dead. You, you, you could rise her from right, right now from the dead. And we believed in Jesus' name that he could, and if he was willing, he would. And uh, I remember saying, you made the sun stand still in the sky, and so please turn back the time. Make, the, make, make this not, you know, be, be our reality. And... Um, She didn't come back into her body. And so we sunk to our knees, and Jen and I both grabbed her hands, and, and I, we just found ourselves saying what Job had given us to say. We, we followed his footprints in the snow, and we, we said, God, you, you gave her to us. At her dedication, we lifted her up and said, she's yours, so we, she was never ours, and you've chosen to take her now back. So as you give and as you take away, all we can do is bless your name. And that moment was about as close to being in heaven as I think I've ever been. Just knowing that in my arms, my daughter, a part of me, had gone into the arms of her heavenly father, it was, it was like being behind the veil for a second. So just, just walk us through the next... Um Maybe just the next hour. I know there's a lot of fast forwarding in the story, but you're, everything changes in a few minutes. Now you're on your knees in a hospital, but then you have to stand up in that reality. What, what, yeah. What's that? So about? beautiful and behind the veil lasted really short. Um, because next, I wanted to tear all the machines off the wall. We were alone in the, you know, uh, ER room, and I just, I remember pacing. My wife's there crying, holding in his hands, and she died with her eyes open. And I, um, I closed her eyes, and, you know, pretty soon it was, it was this, like, setting in. You know, it was shock. It was all so sudden that I didn't have a chance to say goodbye, so it was all this happening at once. And then all of a sudden, the, the front desk is asking us, what funeral home do you want us to call? And I'm thinking, this is, no, I don't want you to call any funeral home. Whether well, they can come zip her up in a bag, like this is, this is the kind of stuff you're thinking, you know. And, and uh, we finally got into the car, and Jenny 
um, says to me, why don't you go back in there? And I'm like, what are you, like, leaving was the hardest thing ever. Like, you want me to go back in there? She says, yeah, you got to invite all those people in that hospital to church. And I turned to her, and I'm like, what, who are you? How, angel in disguise? Like, and she, and, I, and she, in her hand, she has invitations to our Christmas Eve worship experience. Where she produced them from, Louis, I'll never know. How, how, how do you have collateral for a church campaign in your purse in emergencies? I don't, and she says, Linya would want you to. And the truth is, Linya would always get us, like if we didn't invite the waitress or the, the girl to grocery store, Linya would be like, you gotta invite them, you gotta invite them, Dad. And so, so I, I realized she's right. So I go back in the hospital, and I go up to the front desk and the security guard and the, you know, everybody, and I just, I'm crying, I'm saying, and I'm saying, hey, my, my daughter is behind that sheet, but she's in heaven with Jesus, home for Christmas, and I'm supposed to preach at a Christmas Eve worship experience in four days that I, mess, I wrote the message today, and I don't know how I'll do it, but I said, if you'll come in her honor, I'll preach. And we found out later that two of the paramedics and the respiratory therapist who was there that night with her, uh, they came and gave their lives to Christ at the worship experience in, in, in my wife and daughter's honor, you know, so crazy. Just how God can, can use those kind of hard things. So that, that was, it was, it was high highs and low lows is all I'm trying to say. Things that are so, so difficult and unspeakable and so, so heart crushing that we don't know what to do with them. And Job had experienced that. He had lost in chapters one and two, we'll be again this morning. He had lost his family. All of his kids were gone and crushed. All of his possessions were taken away. His health was taken away. This was all done by the evil hand of the accuser, Satan, but it was allowed by God, who is good. And I want you to see something as we look at Job's life and as we think about the unspeakable things and the dark things that can happen to us in our lives as we just hear that testimony of a brother who has lost, he lost his four-year-old. I want us to see this, that we can grieve, and it is fine to grieve, but we must not grieve like people without hope. Because when Job had everything in his life taken from him, he never sinned in that moment. In fact, the Bible is very clear that he grieves and he, does, he goes through all the motions of somebody who is broken, but he speaks blessing to God. And the Bible says that he never sinned with his lips. So if you would, we're going to look at two sections of how Job responded when his life fell apart. So we can look at and see how we, how we can get through the dark times in faith and not hopelessness. If you would, Job 1, beginning in verse 20. Remember, Job has just, at this point, Job has lost his, all of his possessions all of his wealth, and his kids have been killed. And this is how he responds in Job 1, verse 20. He says this, Then Job arose, and he tore his robe, and he shaved his head, and he fell on the ground, and he worshipped. This is, a, this is a verse in Hebrew that is filled with verbs, and they're all, it's, he just did thing after thing after thing in in mourning. In verse 21, then he speaks. So this is what Job did in verse 20. Then verse 21, then Job speaks, and he says this, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. And then he worships, and he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. And then verse 22, in all of that sorrow, in all of his shaving his head, in all of his grief, in all of his speaking, here is the pronouncement, and this is huge. Verse 22, in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So the sin here, as we can kind of understand, is kind of some parallelism. The sin, if he would have committed sin, it would have been that he spoke and he charged God with wrongdoing. But we know Job didn't. He said, God, it's your prerogative. You give, you take away. And in all this, he did not sin. And then we go on. After that, 
Satan comes after him again in chapter 2, beginning in verse 7, and takes away his health. So not only he's lost his possessions, he's lost his family, he's lost, he lost, now he has lost, at this point, he's going to lose his health. Verse 7 of Job chapter 2 says this, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. You can go, and it's just about that verse right there. You can read, people have spilled gallons and gallons of ink trying to figure out what skin ailment that he had. Only thing I know, it was bad. So bad, in fact, that he just sits there in ashes, and he takes a piece of broken pottery and starts digging at his wounds. Nasty, right? Verse 8 goes on and says this, And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself, and he sat in ashes, and he scraped himself. Then his wife said to him, and this is not what you say to hurting people, by the way, okay? And then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? You still trust in God? Job, you need to curse God and die. And she's out. Verse 10, he said to her, you speak, <laughs> you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. And that's pretty cleaned up to what I might say, I'll be honest with you. I'm just saying what you were thinking, all right? Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? That's actually a poor translation. The better translation, shall we receive good and not trouble? Should we, all of our life be sunshine and rainbows and we can't accept any kind of adversity from God? And then it says this, and all this, Job did not sin with his lips, which means Job did not say to God, you're wrong, you are evil. Job walked in faith and knew that even though this calamity had come upon him, God was still good and he did not sin in any of it. Now, I want you to know, I want to point this out very quickly and very, uh, hopefully, um, very, in a way that just resonates with us this morning, is that Job's suffering is an example to us because he did not sin. It is supposed to be an example to us because grief will befall all of us. I'm sorry to say, in this world, in this world filled with sin and calamity, in this world that's aching to be redeemed, in this world that will one day, that will one day see Christ return, and, and until that time, there will be suffering and pain and death and mourning and grieving. Until that day, it will be here. It's going to come your way. It's just how, how are you going to respond to it? Are you going to respond in faith or hopelessness? Now, here's the beauty of this. The book of Job is a gift to those who go through suffering. It is a gift because it shows us behind the veil of what God's doing, something we would never see on our own, something that Job himself never got to see. And it points us to the fact that we don't have to walk in hopelessness when our world falls apart. And isn't that just like God to speak to us in our darkest nights and to speak to us in the worst of situations and to give us an example of a man who lost everything? If you try, it's not good to compare your sufferings to other people. You realize that, right? Like to sit around, that's going to make you bitter, okay? Or at worst, it might make you sick, okay? Because you'd be like, <laughs> they got it worse than me, <laughs> okay? And then the other side of the thing is, well, I can never listen to another person try to comfort me because they obviously have not been through what I've been through. Well, here's the deal. There's two people in the Bible and two people in the, that have lived in the world who've been through as worse, if not worse, than you've been through. So you can go ahead and remove that chip that you put on your shoulder that's keeping you from experiencing the comfort of God. And here it is. Job lost everything. You can, at least, you can get except for his life. And right there, that's about as, as deep a suffering as you could get. And he responded in faith. Jesus himself was the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He was the God man. And he did not sin in his suffering. So, and he was tempted and tried in every way we were, but without sin. I want you to know something this morning. We have examples of ways to walk in faith, and your suffering is not greater than the suffering that the Son of God had or that Job had. So you can come and get some comfort this morning. Go ahead and get that chip off your shoulders. You won't understand. You won't understand. I probably won't. 
I'm an upper middle class white guy and have been for my entire life. I probably don't understand your sufferings. But guess what? God does. So go ahead and I'll just disarm it for a minute. Because some of us come and you never understand. I will probably not ever understand what you're going through. But God does. And I want you to get, he gave us this example of a man who did not sin in his suffering but responded in faith. And so we see this. Job, it said he did not charge God with wrong. This week, my little boy Judson and I were running around like chickens with our head cut, cut off. And a four-year-old does not walk around with the same sense of urgency as a 33-year-old who needs to get things done. You guys know that, right? Like, little kids are all like, I like things, okay? And I'm like, let's go, man, come on. Come on, let's get it, okay? And he's like, uh-huh, okay? And I'm like, keep it together. Love your son, okay? And we were in Fred's over here just down the street, and I am like, let's go, Kimosabi, we got to go. And he's walking, and he's got a sticker in his hand, and he's going, mm-hmm, and he's not looking where he's going, and he trips over a curb in the parking lot of Fred's, and he scrapes his leg really bad. Like, blood appeared almost immediately, and it was big, and people are looking at me because this little boy goes, He's going, why did you let that happen? And I was like, it's your fault, the little sticker. And I was like, keeping it together, but you're walking like, and I'm like, let's go. So I have to show compassion and love. And I really was sad for him because he was just so upset about this. And so we, I go home real quick, and I got to go do more errands, and I run in the house, and I, I put all the, uh, the, the Neosporin everywhere. I mean, it got everywhere, and I grabbed this gigantic Band-Aid like, he was, like it's like a tourniquet, and I put it on his leg, and, and, and for the whole rest of the night and the next couple of days, anytime we would take the Band-Aid off, he's like, no, don't take the Band-Aid off. It's going to hurt. No. We said, we got to put peroxide on it. We got to wash it. We gotta, oh, it's going to hurt. Why are you going to hurt me? Why are you going to hurt me? Why are you going to hurt me, Dad? And he's shaking and his lips quivering and he's, he's sitting there in his, in his underwear and we're trying to fix that leg and he's just saying, me and Amy, like, why are you hurting me? Were we hurting? Were we trying to hurt him? No. What were we trying to do? Clean his wound. We were trying to keep, make sure that he heals from it. We were trying to make sure... That something good comes out of this, that he does not have, you know, get an infection, have to lose his leg. We were, we were working for his good, but he thought that we were doing evil to him. He did not have proper perspective. And I want you to get this. Job acknowledges that God is still good even in the sufferings, and he acknowledges this, that he does not have omniscient perspective. And so he's not, he does not accuse. Why he, is not, why he does not sin here that we see in, in, in chapter 1 and chapter 2 is because he has a, and this has got to be a God-given thing, he has the perspective enough to know that God is still good even though it hurts, and that God is working good even though it is awful what is happening. Just like Judson, most of us, when we have something bad happen, we just immediately go, why me? And not, God, what are you doing? And so let's get this point. God has given us an example here in Job of somebody who does not cry, why me? But he cries and he looks and he says, God, you're still good. I don't know why, but you're still good. So he is an example. And because he's an example, we can learn how we can, through Job's life, we can learn how we can walk in faith when we grieve. We can grieve in faith and not hopelessness. So I want us to really dive deep and look at his responses. So we see Job as an example. We also see this. Job is an example of someone who really, really grieved, who was really, really hurt, who was really, really broken, and he grieved but he did not grieve hopelessly. If you would, look in verse 20 of Job chapter 1, and it is, talks about all the things Job did in his grief. In verse 20 it says, Then Job arose and tore his robe, and he shaved his head, and he fell on the ground, and he worshipped. Then if you go back, if you look in chapter 2 of Job, right after he loses his health, in verse um, Eight, it says this, he took a broken piece of pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in ashes. 
Job, he models basically the typical type of mourning period that would happen in the ancient Near East of this time period, which is several, several, several thousand years ago. And so he was modeling, and remember, he's living in the land of Uz or Uz or however you want to say it, however it's pronounced. He's living in this land, which is modern-day Saudi Arabia. So he's in the ancient Near East, and he is doing the things that culturally they would do. If you think about it, when we have a funeral, most of us don't have to think about how it's going to go, right? You call the funeral home, the one that's been in your town for a while. You call them, they come and they pick up your loved one, and they do what they need to do at the funeral home. And then what happens? People feed you until you're full as a tick, okay? That's how we, that's how we like, help each other, and that's how we mourn. It's like, here's food, okay? Am I right? You've been to one of these? And different parts of the country do it different ways. And, and sometimes around here, the visitations that you would visit with the family, right? The person would be sitting in the casket at the front of the funeral home, and people would walk through, and they would talk to the family, and they would view the body. And this can last, depending on what part of your country you are, this could go from 30 minutes to whole days. And then from that, you have the funeral service. Then now we go to the graveside. Is there something up here that's different than where I was from? When, when we would leave funerals back in Florida, we would leave the casket on the top and the people would do the burying before, after we had gone. But here, they lower the casket and put the dirt down and do all the burying while the family watches. And that's just a cultural thing. That, that is how funerals go here. Well, in the ancient Near East... He, Job does some things that would be typical for them. Here's one, and I don't completely understand it, but you can see that they, they, they really were demonstrative in their suffering. Most of us, it's, it seems in this, this culture, in our culture, we got to keep it to ourselves. When they were mourning, they made it a public event. So here's what Job did in verse 20. He arose and he tore his robe. I guess he's saying my heart's broken, and that was an outward symbol of, hey, I tore my robe. This is something that, this was a cultural thing. They would have done this. So he tore his robe in mourning. Not only that, he shaved his head. And I can see the only reason that you would do that was to show that your life is, like, it's changed immeasurably. And you are in this state of mourning. And then he goes on, and um, and he does two things in the rest of verse 20. He falls on the ground. He worships. That's extra, extraordinary. But then we get to verse, go back to chapter 2 of Job, and it says this, that he took a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself with. That's not normal for mourning at the time period, okay? Then it says this, he set in ashes. So this morning, if you were, go, if you were to go to a funeral here in Hartsville, Tennessee, and the family was dressed in ripped clothing, and they all had shaved their heads bald, and were sitting in ashes, you would be royally freaked out, right? I would. I would be like, I'm going to stay for a little while till we eat, and then I'm going to leave, okay? I'm going to love them, hug them, and then I'm going to get out of here. Maybe not eat. There's ashes involved. Who knows? Well, but to this time period, this would have been, this was the way they mourned. This is the way they showed great grief. And honestly, it was having that grief that was on the inside. It was being demonstrated on the outside through these things. Because if you think about sitting in ashes, what are ashes? It was something that now has been completely and utterly destroyed by fire. And they're sitting saying, hey, I have been ruined. And so Job sat there. And if you saw, if we would got to lay eyes on him, we would have seen a mess of a person. He wasn't trying to do the stiff up for lip thing. He embraced, he, he was staring into the skid of the things that he was going through. So know this, that mourning is necessary. Mourning is normal. Remember, Job did not sin, so he mourned, and he mourned in a way that was culturally normal for him, at least most of it. And so we need to, and it's okay to mourn, especially when we have experienced a huge loss, and sometimes you know, if you've been there, there's sometimes words just can't come. Only tears can flow. And it is not wrong to mourn. In fact, you know what Jesus himself would say on the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And so we see Job, it's okay to mourn, but remember, it's not okay to mourn in a hopeless way. Do you remember, he does all these things that are normal to his time period. What does he do? He, he tears his robes, okay? 
You know, we think tearing robes, we think Hulk, okay? But that's not it. He just tore his robes because out of sadness. What does he do? He shaves his head out of sadness. He does this culturally normal thing, and then he sits in ashes showing his brokenness, and this is culturally normal. But he does a couple of things that are completely not normal, and it would not, was not part of the ancient Near East traditions. And here it is in verse 20 of Job chapter 1. It says this, he fell on the ground, and he worshiped. This idea, the word used here for fall on the ground, is a word that's used kind of regularly in the ancient Near East to talk about when a king comes in and the people who are subordinate to him, they bow their knees in reverence. You've seen this before, people bowing to a king. You've probably seen it on a movie or you've probably seen it in other places. Maybe you've gone to England and you know how people have to bow to the queen and maybe you've seen that on television. Here's what's going on. He does something that's not common for people mourning at this time, he falls on his knees, not just out of desperation because he is sitting in ashes and he is desperate and he is broken, but he falls on his knees like, he's, like God is his king and his sovereign, and he falls and he says, whatever you bring my way, you are in control, Lord, and it is a sign of submission to him. He is bowing and saying, you are right in whatever you do. And then it says he worshiped the Lord. He gave God praise. And we see in the next section how he speaks that praise. I want you to get something here. Job, in his bowing down and worshiping, is showing that he believes God is Lord. And you know what? It's easy for us to say this a lot. In fact, the early Christians, what we would, what one of the ways that would separate us, and one of the things that actually used to cause our suffering sometimes when we were being persecuted, was to say, Jesus is Lord. It's a big statement. That was saying, it's tantamount to saying Jesus is God, God of the Old Testament, the Yahweh, but also it was saying Jesus is in control of my life. And really, Jesus says, unless a man comes to me and forsakes all he has and takes up his cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. So here's the deal. If you're going to follow Jesus, he is Lord. But here's what we like to do. We like to say Jesus is Lord in church and then not live like Jesus is Lord often. Right? Maybe that's you, sweetie, because I'm doing it a lot. I'm telling you, I sometimes, I, want, I profess Jesus is Lord all the time, but there are times when I don't live like he's Lord, especially when I'm going through tough things. But that's not right. See, because what Job does is in his great grief, he gets on his knees to his Lord, and he bows his head, and he is in submission to Jesus. Jesus, or the God the Father here, we see in Yahweh, eventually we see it in Christ, he falls on his knees And he says, you are Lord of my sufferings. I don't have the right to call you into question because you got control. You are Lord. And so I want to challenge you, believers. Make him Lord of your sufferings now before you enter them. Because it will be very difficult when you're in them unless you have made this, this plea and declaration before. What does that look like? What do I mean by making him Lord of your sufferings? I saw it this week, or heard about it this week. My great aunt was one of the sweetest ladies that you will ever know. Her name, we called her Aunt Nett. And uh, every time you go, she lived in South Georgia, like peanut country South Georgia, okay? Like nothing but gnats and peanuts in this place, okay? South Georgia, all right? And she lived down there, and every time you'd come and visit her, she would, make, she would have at least three types of dessert made at all times. And not just three, like, not like Little Debbie's, folks. Like handmade, homemade caramel cake, like, like um, uh, red velvet cake, stuff you'd eat, like never even heard of that was in South Georgia, and she'd give it to you, and you're like, this is good. What does it have in it? She's like, butter. Okay, I mean, you're like, yes. And she would make, she would also, when you were coming and she found out, she would try to make what you love the most at her house. She could cook, and she could cook, and she could cook. And she loved Jesus. And this week, after two years of struggling with dementia, maybe even more, was it more? Eight years of struggling with dementia and seeing one of the sweetest ladies in the world dealing with anger and being mean and mean to people because of the dementia and her lost capacity, this sweet lady went home to be with Jesus. And her family was around the bed. And for two days, she would not swallow and she could not take any 
anything to drink or eat. So they had to watch her family, who loved her so and knew of her love for others and her love for, for King Jesus, they had to sit around her bed and watch her die. She was 80 pounds when she passed, and she, she, it, was a, it was two days of agony. And the family, from what I've heard, held hands, and they prayed together that Jesus would go ahead and take her home. He did, but not, not, not for two days. And all this, God was not wrong. In all this, God was sovereign over her sufferings. And there was a belief here that God would do the right thing even if we couldn't see it. And it permeated that, and I see that as a great blessing. I see that as a hard, awful thing. But I also see it as God being sovereign over our lives why do we say he's sovereign in the good times but not in the bad? He is sovereign over it all, and he is working in it all. And I want you to know something. It is okay for us to grieve, but not to grieve as the hopeless. How does it mean to, be, to grieve like hopeless people? It's to accuse God of wrongdoing. I want you to know something. Jesus, when he, the God-man, when he was in the flesh, and he wept. In fact, that's one of the shortest verses in the Bible is John eleven thirty five, 35, where it says Jesus wept. Kevin alluded to it when he preached a couple of weeks ago on Psalm 100. That verse takes place in the situation where Jesus' good friend Lazarus was sick. And do you know what Jesus did? He didn't run there immediately. He waited till Lazarus died. And when his disciples said, why did we do this? He's dead now. They thought that was the end. Jesus said, all this is done so that you may believe. And he said to them, I'm the resurrection and the life. And though someone dies, they, if you believe in me, you will live. And they asked him, do you believe this? And Jesus said, all of this, the reason that Lazarus died and all the pain and all the mourning was happening is so that you could see that I am God's son. And if you believe in me, you will be raised like I've been raised. He took all of that mourning and it was all for good, but they could not see it because they, all they saw was the dead friend. And so Jesus goes to the grave and, and this is in John chapter 11 and he gets there. And he sees all the people, and at this time, in that particular part of the world, they also hired people to mourn. That was their jobs. you imagine that? Your job was to cry and wail for other people, to show their sadness, okay? Some of you may feel like that's what you're employed to do, okay? But I assure you, you're not, all right? No matter how bad your job is, this was a bad one. Because you know you're not going to have a good day, right? You're going to come home with a headache. <laughs> okay, that's what you do all day. It's your job. They would hire people to come do that. I know it's weird, okay, but it's just the way it was. And Jesus sees all this, this stuff, and he weeps. This word is really difficult to understand in Greek what it means when you weep. Part of it has an idea of anger, and part of it has an idea of great sadness. And I don't know which was which because our emotions are com complicated, but the God-man didn't sin in any of it, and he weeped. And so if Jesus wept, we can weep. And he wept. But in his power, he said, get up, Lazarus. And you know what he did? Yes, sir. Hop right up. And he's still in the grave clothes. He said, take him off. And that's where the other great verse in the Bible, if you read it in the King James Version, it's even great. He said, Lord, you don't want to open that tomb. Why? Because he's been dead for a while and he stinketh in the King James, okay? That's free. And so they opened and he comes out alive. If we were, if we were there, we would be complaining like the disciples. God, why did you let this happen? How could you? You had the power to stop it. Why? And he's saying, I did this so you would believe. And that though you die, you will live. I want you to know something. That there, every bad thing that comes into your life is pointing you to the fact that you need to believe in the God who has come and died and, and had immeasurable suffering on your part. Get this, folks. Suffering, our suffering must be submitted to God, knowing that he is doing more than we can see. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean he's not doing it. And sometimes he uses the worst of situations to do the best things in our life and to glorify him. Because you know the reason Job suffered? He didn't suffer because he did wrong. 
Job suffered because he was living a life of faith. And God was working glory in Job's life. And he couldn't see it, but he believed it. We go on. Not only should we submit our suffering to him, but I want to know when, when we have that shock of that, that moment of grief hitting us, because we never expect it, do we? Even when we know that loved one has gone to pass and we've been around the hospital bed for so long, and even though we do get that sense of relief that sometimes brings us guilt when that person passes, it's always a shock. It's like taking off and landing in an airplane. To me, that's always just complete chaos, okay? You think about this. We have this, this thousands, thousands of pound tube with wings that we fly in, like they take a bunch of us in the air, and then all of a sudden, they're supposed to land on this one little strip, and it's, it's, it's chaos. Thankfully, it's control chaos. Lord willing, you trust that pilot, right? And then you hit, and then it's, it's, you, you, the plane shakes, and you hear the brakes, and you hear the backward thrust of the engine, and it's that chaos. And so that's sometimes what it's like when, when tragedy hits us, even if we were expecting it. It's that chaos that comes, and it's disorienting a little bit, and it's wild. And so when that happens, how are we to walk in faith? And I think Job's responses, the way he speaks, not just what he did, but what he speaks, show us how we are to respond in the chaos of when these things happen, how we can be submitting to God in our sufferings. And so I want you to see these things. And Job's responses, I want you to see how we can respond in faith. It's one thing to tell you, hey, you need to respond in faith. Here, the good news is that the Bible shows us how to respond in faith. And so we see in his, his answer in verse 21 of Job chapter 1, Job says this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. The first part of his response acknowledges human frailty. Have you noticed, listen to the radio, depending on what stations you're listening to, okay, I don't want to, you know, if you listen to some pop music, there is this like really big theme of we're going to be young forever. We're never going to get old. We're never going to die. In fact, one of the most popular songs that's out right now is, is it, at the, the hook, at the end of the hook is we ain't never getting older. Really? <laughs> we ain't never getting old. Really? Those of you who have gotten a little bit older, did you get older? Yeah. In fact, the alternate, alternative to getting older is getting dead, okay? It's insanity. We're going to be young forever. We ain't never getting older. That is hogwash to the highest level. It's completely that. And Job acknowledges his frailty and acknowledges that death is coming his way and acknowledges the fact that at the end, we will be left with nothing. You don't see hearses hauling U-Hauls, and at the end of the day, we were born naked. Because that would be weird if we came out in a onesie or something, right? We were born naked, and when we die, we go take nothing with us. Even if we're clothed, we become worm food, and we die. At the end, what are we left with? We are facing eternity with God with nothing, no possessions, and what we bring to the party. And the only way it's going to turn out good is you bring your faith to the party which he even gave you. So he acknowledges his frailty. Acknowledge this, everybody, we need to know that you are going to die. All your stuff and all the things you accomplish, unless they have eternal perspective, will pass away. And we will die, and we will face him with nothing. So what is it if we lose all of our stuff, but at the end we end up clothed when we stand before him in his righteousness? What does it matter how much we lose here is if there we will be clothed by him and not by what we try to cover ourselves up with. Remember our first parents, when they sinned, they tried to cover themselves with fig, fig leaves. That didn't work out too well. He saw through that real quick. We try to cover our shame in all sorts of many ways, but here's the good news. The only people that at the end, when you arrive to the pearly gates, okay, or you arrive at the judgment seat, okay, when you arrive, the only people that will do well there are those who are clothed in a garment, not their own. That has to be the righteousness of Jesus through faith. 
And if he takes away, if he has to take away everything now for you to be clothed on that day, it's okay. Because there is something far greater than having your stuff and having life like you like it now. Acknowledge your frailty. Acknowledge death. We don't like it. That's why funerals, that's one of the reasons funerals are so awkward too. They're sad, but they're awkward because no one wants to talk about the, the elephant in the room, okay? That we're all going to die. Acknowledge our frailty and acknowledge that there, our frailty points us to the fact that we, we will one day die and we will have to stand before him. And what will we be wearing when that happens? Second thing I want you to know, Job, in this next section, he says, Naked I come, in, come from my mother's womb. This is verse 21 of chapter 1. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. Then he said, The Lord gave. He acknowledges God's gracious blessings. Get this. Remember, Job was seen to be, he was so wealthy. They count, now, they counted his wealth not in cash, but in cattle, okay? So we have a problem, like, looking that way, because we don't, most of us, unless you are, farmer, like my man Mike down here, okay, you don't, see, you don't see cattle and you see cash on the same level. At least I don't, okay? It's not like you pull out your wallet and all of a sudden like you pull out like a lamb or like a chicken, okay? That'd be weird at the, at the place, okay? Like <laughs> trying to pay at the Piggly Wiggly, you know, just don't do that, okay? My pastor said to give him a goat at the Piggly Wiggly, okay? Don't do that. But he was the wealthiest of men. He had the perfect family, Brady Bunch style. God had given him so many blessings. And how, how quickly would he have turned on God? And how quickly, honestly, do we turn on God when bad things happen? And we, realize, and we have all these blessings and we forget all the blessings. And we, we just see the terror. Matt Chandler, a pastor I really respect, talking about 9-11. You know, the events of 9-11. He said, people are always asking, where is God on 9-11? Well, why are they not asking or glorifying God for all the safe air travel that we had had, the thousands and thousands and thousands of flights that have arrived with no problems, but then that one thing happens, and we go, where is God? How often do we forget all that he has done for us, all the blessings that we have? A friend of mine recently posted something that really convicted me on Facebook, okay? No, it was not one of those things like if you don't copy and, you know, do this, you'll lose your salvation or a nuclear bomb will hit you. It was not one of those, okay? It was this thing. He posted a picture of his living room at his very nice house in Spring Hill, and the house was ransacked. I thought they had been robbed until you focus in on the walls and they had crayon marks everywhere. It looked like a cave, like a, like a caveman cave, okay? It was like, like little hieroglyphics everywhere. And what they had done, he's been reaching out to his community, and they were having a neighborhood dinner, and it started to rain. And so they moved everybody into their house. And if you would have seen this house, I mean, toys strewn, stuff broken. There was pictures of pieces of toys on the ground. There was like these crazy caveman drawings on the wall. What would you think? In my mind, I'd be like, we're never having this again. Like, how dare people raise their kids like that? And I'm going to cut somebody. And you would have thought that would have been it. We're never having another one of these again unless it's, you know, <laughs> I seal the house with, you know, kills primer or something. No, here's what he wrote. He said, I spent the night talking to my kids about how great it is that our house is messy for the glory of God and for other people and how we have broken toys so we can love people and we have marks on our walls because we can love people and that is so great. He said, I spent the night doing that and then helping my wife clean it up, okay? And he saw the blessing in it. Job had been the richest man with the best family in all of the East. How could he, just because God took it away, which is all a blessing, nothing deserved. You don't deserve anything but judgment from God. But God, in his graciousness, gives you thing upon thing. And how, how, are we, how wealthy are we, honestly, because we're sitting in an air-conditioned building. A friend of mine who lives in Africa is a missionary. Him and his son, they did, he was homeschooling him. They did a biology project where they cut up a rabbit to do the dissection, and then they ate that rabbit that night on pizza. 
You do not have to eat rabbit pizza today. Glory. You get this? How many are our blessings, and how quickly do we turn when we think that we don't have what we ought? But I want you to know something. Job acknowledged that everything is a gracious gift from God, and he also acknowledged God is sovereign, and it is his prerogative to give and to take away. We see that twice. We see that. He says this, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. He says, God, it's good that you did that. I don't know why. I can't see it. I can't see the good in it, but you're right. You give and you take away. And then you go to chapter 2 where his wife tells him, hey, Job, curse God and die. You know what he says? Besides calling her a foolish woman, he says, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. He says this, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive trouble? Do we not realize that God is working in the good and in the troubled times? Do we not realize that God, it's God's prerogative? Because he's more concerned about how you will arrive at to meet him when you die than, than he is with how much stuff you have now how much comfort you have now. He's more concerned about your eternity than he is your right now. So I want you just just to to breathe this in for a second. We need to acknowledge that everything we have is a blessing and that it's God's prerogative to give and to take whatever he wants, whenever he wants it. Not only that, we have to acknowledge God's goodness in it all. Because at the end of verse 21, we sang this today. Job said, man, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will return naked. The Lord has given me much. He probably, as he was saying that, he was thinking about those ten kids that he had. And he was thinking about all those possessions in those days they used to hang out and enjoy their life together. And then he said, but the Lord has taken away. And you can imagine that tear in his eyes. He think about those horrible days when people ran in and said, your whole family is gone, Job. And then he just says these words. Because he submitted his suffering to God. He said, you are Lord of my sufferings. He says, blessed, blessed be your name. You are good. Even in this dark, deep, ugly time, you are good. Worship. You should be worshiped. He believes something that he cannot see at the moment, but he trusts in it. But he has seen God's gracious hand, and he will not turn away from the gracious God. And he knows that God is his champion. He knows that God is good, and he declares that how can we receive good from God and not receive that which brings us trouble? We have to know that he is good in all circumstances. And here's the good thing we don't have. Job didn't get a seat behind the veil like we do. See, we've been given the grace of revelation, the revelation of God. So we know that Job was not suffering because he sinned. We know why Job was suffering. He never knew. Not only that, we have had greater revelation in Jesus Christ. And because we have greater revelation in Jesus Christ, I want you to know this. Living on this side of the cross, after it has happened, it shows us how much good God can do out of pain and suffering because he crushed his own son to give us life. And so whenever you get to the second where you just get to that place where you're saying, I, don't, I can't believe he is good, he killed his son so that we could have life. His son who did nothing died on our behalf. Job didn't have that, but we do. He is good. He has given us all things in Christ. He said that even though a man die, yet shall he live. And he asked us, do we believe that? Because he is the resurrection and the life. This is not the end. All our sufferings, and Paul would say it best. I want to get you this. For our light momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. God is working in our sufferings to produce for us a glory, something great that we can't even fathom. I don't know how bad it hurts. I don't. I don't know how much you're struggling. I mean, I've struggled some of my life. I've hurt some of my life, but I dare not compare it to you, but I want, to know, I want you to know something. In all of it, God is good. 
And if you doubt it, you don't have to look any farther than the fact that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His intentions for us are good. And He is working in ways that you don't see. And you could never see. You couldn't fathom it. It would blow our minds. He is working in our light momentary afflictions. And, and there, these momentary things that we're going through, these tough struggles, they're only light in comparison to what God's got for us. They're difficult now. They're crushing now. They are nights of weeping and wailing, and it's fine to do that. But it is not fine to, to say, God, you're wrong. We cannot grieve as hopeless people. We must grieve as people with hope because God has shown himself good. We have this revelation that shows that, that God suffered on our behalf in Christ, that we might have life for our light, momentary affliction. Our troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs everything that we could suffer. There's something better before us. The best days, our best days are ahead. Doesn't matter if you're 99 and your health is failing. The be your best days are ahead. Your best days are ahead. They just might not be on this side. He is working in our waiting. He is working in the darkest of nights. He is good. And our light momentary affliction, they are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs everything we have suffered. And you know what i like us to do? We need to respond to that. And what Job's friends ended up doing, they used, <laughs> later on in the book, they become morons. And they showed them, but they were probably morons before, but they showed themselves to be morons. But in verse 11 of chapter 2, it says, Then Job's three friends heard of all the evil that had come upon him, and they came from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the, Shu, the, the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namanite. And they made an appointment together to come to show sympathy and comfort him. And they didn't answer with platitudes, they answered with the presence. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and they wept. And they tore their robes and they sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. They sat with their friend in mourning. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. And I think what we need to do in light of that is... We're just going to sit for a minute, and we're going to let this, we have a video to show you, just let this kind of wash over us, and you just need to just sit before the Lord, and open those hands up, and lay those things before Him. So I like us to do this, we're going to pray, and we're going to watch this video, and we're just going to let, we're just going to sit in the truths that we've heard, and we're going to sit and let God speak to our spirit. And we're going to hopefully hand him these things that we are holding and say, I don't know why, but I know you're good here. I bow it. You're my king. God, help us as we respond. In Jesus' name. Your name, though. 
Not only is all your affliction momentary, not only is all your affliction light in comparison to eternity and the glory there, but all of it is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your pain from the fallen nature or fallen man, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory you will get because of that. I don't care if it was cancer or criticism. I don't care if it was slander or sickness. It wasn't meaningless. It's doing something. It's not meaningless. Of course you can't see what it's doing. Don't look to what is seen. When your mom dies, when your kid dies, when you got cancer at 40, when a car careens into the sidewalk and takes her out, don't, don't say, it's meaningless. It's not. It's working for you an eternal weight of glory. Therefore, therefore, do not lose heart, but take these truths and day by day, Focus on them. Preach them to yourself every morning. Get alone with God and preach His Word into your mind until your heart sings with confidence that you are new and cared for. miss here in just a second, but I want to um, invite you to join one another and even myself in prayer. We're going to dismiss with the words of Jude um, and his benediction, his doxology to the Lord. And after we dismiss, if you are just in a place of, of struggle, I'm going to be down here at the front. I'd be glad to pray with you. There's only one of me, though, and there's a whole bunch of you. So you're quite free to grab one of our deacons or to grab a friend and come down to the front. Of the, there's nothing special about it. This is the stage. I mean, this used, under here is kind of rough looking anyway. But what I'm saying is this is just a place where you can symbolically bring your needs and your hurt to the Lord. And so I'd, be, I'd love to pray for you if you're struggling or you need some help. I'd love to talk to you and pray with you. Our deacons would as well. Or just grab a friend and come and pray. Well, we're not going to do that as part of the service. We'll let you go. I know some of you that, that aren't there and aren't ready for that. Um, some of you that just, stuff's going real good, and, and pr bless God for that. But we're going to do this. Let's stand, and let's, let's hear the words of Jude. And if you want to pray after we get done, I'll be around here. We'll play some music, um, and I'll be ready to pray, pray with you. or grab some money and come and pray. Now, this is the words of Jude on the inspiration of the Spirit. He said this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. You are dismissed.
painted heart Take these tainted hands Wash me in your love Come like grace again I will only sing
I will 